Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the gifts of the Magi, these three gifts that the biblical record says that these wise men, these Magi, laid before the feet of the Christ child. These gifts are not just nice gifts that the Magi bring, not just like a housewarming gift that we might bring. They are rich symbols that would suggest, that that we would suggest, tell you about the character of this child, this Jesus who has come into the world. Gold is given. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Not a very practical gift for a child, right? But rather a gift that's fitting for a king. Frankincense. That's a sweet-smelling perfume that was most commonly used for the priests of the temple as an aroma pleasing to God. This is a gift for a priest, a mediator between God the Father and we, his children. The last of these gifts that's brought to Jesus that's noted is myrrh. Now, I'm, I'm sure that you've received some odd gifts before in your life. We'd probably have an interesting time sharing some of those stories. But myrrh is a really odd gift. And I think its meaning is as odd and offensive today as it would have been to Mary and Joseph over 200 years ago. So what is myrrh? Myrrh is actually, uh, it's a resin that comes from several small thorny trees in the Comifora tree family. Can you tell I've been reading on this this week? It seeps from the bark of these trees and it's dried and it becomes a resin crystal that can be Um, that can be burned down into a liquid or can be rubbed into one's skin. It was very valuable, probably even a little more valuable than gold and frankincense at the time, but it was not a particularly nice gift to receive. Gold or perfume, I think we could sell that that's a pretty nice gift even today, but myrrh is quite different. Myrrh comes from the Arabic word for bitter, It's a bitter-tasting, acerbic-smelling spice. So what do we know about myrrh biblically, and why in the world would this gift be presented to the Christ child? Well, based on my reading this week, I see two uses for myrrh in Scripture. The first is that it was bundled together with uh, perfumes and spices for various beautification processes. Some take this to mean that myrrh was some sort of perfume, but this is probably not the case. Myrrh never is really used as a perfume on its own, but rather it's mixed with perfumes and and spices. The key to understanding this actually comes from the book of Esther, chapter 2, where it says this. Before a young woman's turn came to go in and see King Artaxerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. The book of of Esther distinguishes between the myrrh for six months and these other perfumes and cosmetics for the final six months. But clearly, this bitter resin called myrrh was part of the beautification process. So why in the world would Esther have to go through six months of treatments with this myrrh? The Bible doesn't really give any indication of this truth, but myrrh actually has a wide range of health and 
beauty benefits in case you're interested. Here are some uses for myrrh. It cures stretch marks and athlete's foot. It helps with digestion and weak immune systems. It helps with canker sores or bad breath. You actually have traces of myrrh probably in your toothpaste. It's, it cures sore throats or chapped, chapped lips or cracked skin. So it's likely that Esther bathed in liquid myrrh every day for six months, and she likely had to ingest some of this myrrh as well, probably mixed with some other drink, as part of this process. After the first week, the bitterness of, of this myrrh must have been in her taste buds and her nostrils in such a way that that was all she could taste or smell. It's also known to be painful in open sores or cracked skin. So why go through this? Well, Esther had no choice. She had to accept this treatment if she wanted any chance at the crown that the king could offer her, any opportunity to later on in this book save her people. And this king, he was a stickler, far more picky than any judge at any beauty contest. He could spot any blemish inside or out from across the room. So she endured this six months of myrrh treatment so that she might have a flawless foundation to receive her cosmetics and her perfume treatments later on. It was a bitter, arduous, awful process that prepared her to be a beauty that was fit for King Artaxerxes. It was the bitter myrrh that was so integrated into her whole body, skin, inside and outside, that allowed this perfume to take hold of each and every pore, that allowed the cosmetics to go smoothly over any surface. It was a bitter treatment that helped prepare her to meet the king and hopefully find favor with him. So that's one use of myrrh. But that's only half the reason why this is such a fascinating gift for Jesus Christ. The other two uses of myrrh in the Bible are actually found on Good Friday. When Jesus is carrying his cross in extreme agony, Mark 15, 23 says that they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It's well accepted that this bitter myrrh, when mixed with wine, made a pretty strong cocktail that served as an immediate pain reliever, kind of a numbing drug. Jesus rejected this drink before arriving at Golgotha so that he would experience the fullness of pain on that Good Friday. The Gospel of John tells us that while he was on the cross, the very last act of Jesus Christ was to take a drink of myrrh-infused wine from a sponge that was on a pole lifted to him right before he cried out, it is finished. This was in fulfillment of Psalm 69 where it says, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. While he rejected this pain reliever earlier on in the day, once he had experienced the fullness of pain on our behalf, the last thing that he did before he died was to drink the cup of bitterness on our behalf. The last use that we read about is after Jesus' death, also on Good Friday. John 19 says that Joseph of Arimathea was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. 
This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. Myrrh is noted here for its most poignant use. It's an embalming agent, a tool to preserve the body upon burial and to slow the mortification of dead flesh. This actually would have been the most obvious usage to Mary and Joseph when the Magi came, that they were giving a gift for a corpse. So why give this gift? What did this gift truly signify? If we put all these kind of biblical usages together for myrrh, here's what I've come up with this morning. This is a bitter gift that is meant to foundationally prepare in a very uncomfortable way the recipient for rejection, pain, and certain death. Now who in their right mind would give this gift to a baby? Now I'm aware that some of you might be asking a similar question of me this morning. Why are you even preaching on this topic, Lars? I mean, it's a season for joy and wonder and life and belief and family and laughter. I got dressed up in green or red today and we're going to drink hot chocolate later and we're going to wrap gifts and we're going to be a family. And you've welcomed me to church this morning with this message of bitterness and death. Well, Merry Christmas to you too, Pastor Lars. But tell me the truth when you hear this. Tell me the truth. Don't you agree that we're on to something here? Don't you agree that we're on to something here? The story of Esther begins with myrrh. That's how this story begins. And it's filled with bitterness throughout the story. And it's essentially the story of a woman who faces her own certain rejection and death before saving her people from imminent death. Jesus' story, it begins with myrrh. And it's filled with bitterness throughout. And it's essentially a story of his embracing that bitterness to the very end and saving his people from the death that comes from sin. You see, myrrh only makes sense as a gift for someone who sacrifices their very life to save others. In the words of Gregory the Great, gold is paid to a mighty king, frankincense is offered to God, myrrh as one as to one who is to die for the sins of all. What is this gift for? Myrrh is a gift for a savior. Myrrh is a gift for a savior. Now, I'm not telling you to forsake joy and laughter and wonder in the season of Advent. Far from it. I'm not trying to be a downer this morning. I'm trying to give you a, few, a fuller view of what is going on in this stable, in this manger. We so often read the passage that we read from, from Isaiah chapter 9, a passage uh, that we know in this season. It's one of Christmas hope and, and wonder. The people in darkness have seen a great light. The people rejoice. This child who is born is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his peace, there will be no end. His rule is going to be marked by justice and righteousness. This is the glorious picture of the full impact of the Christmas story of this child who's come. But recognize that these words were not true yet when Jesus was born. Almost no one had this euphoric reaction like Isaiah chapter 9 at his birth. Almost no one. The only ones were a handful of simple shepherds and these wise men. That's it. Have you ever thought, have you ever pondered how the wise men knew what gifts to give to Jesus? 
These wise men weren't Jews. And while they may have studied Jewish prophecy, they may have known these passages from Isaiah 9 front and back, it seems like a long shot that they would have understood the fullness of this Messiah's coming for his people. Some people say, well, the stars must have revealed it to them. They must have seen signs like the cross and the crucifixion and, and the empty tomb in the stars. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think that God, through their learned study, gave them a special revelation of who this child was and what this child's life was going to be. And it pointed them to this child. The Gospel of Matthew relates that they didn't just present these gifts to Jesus, but they fell down and they adored this child. They adored him. They worshipped him and adored him. If they're not Jews, why would they worship and adore him? I think that God revealed to them that this is the Messiah of this glorious prophecy in Isaiah and many others about light and darkness and the prince of peace. But even that's not enough to make them bow down and adore him with this present, this bitter present of myrrh. No, I think that they did that because they understood that not only was this Christ child the savior, but they knew, they knew in their own hearts and in their own souls that they themselves desperately needed a savior. Do you see the difference? That's how it is with you and me. If our story of Christ's coming, what we tell in this season, is all light and no darkness, it's all peace and no conflict, all rejoicing and no sorrow, all perfume and no bitterness, all pink fleshy baby skin and no embalming, all gold and incense but no myrrh, then we're not telling the story. Because if Jesus doesn't end up maimed and broken and dead on a cross, then there is no salvation. There is no savior. There is no reason for any of this, of what we're doing. If Jesus doesn't end up as a dead body, then none of what we do in this season makes any sense. The gifts and the decorations and the lighting of candles, and the grace of good food, and the waiting, and the singing, none of it matters one bit. If you don't need a Savior, all of this is meaningless. If you don't have regular moments where you fall down before Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am in need of a Savior. If we sanitize this story and we skip over the myrrh, the gift that connects the cradle to the cross, then we're essentially saying, there's no problem here. I can probably figure this out on myself. I can figure out a way to save myself. There's no darkness. There's no bitterness. There's no strife. There's no discomfort. No death that Christ has to pass through on my behalf. I'm, I'm, I'm good, or at least I'm pretty good. I'm here to say this morning that you need a Savior. And I say this certainly to those of you who have never realized your need for a Savior before. Those of you who have never fully recognized the bitterness of life and what Jesus has gone through for you. But I say it to all of you, even those of you who know that you need a Savior, but forget it every day like I do. I'm here to remind you that you need a Savior. But why? I mean, aren't we mostly good people here? 
Doesn't the good of our lives far outweigh the bad? What good does it do to really focus on bitterness and death? That just kind of pulls us down. Can't we pass over that? Why focus on the bad stuff? Well, the reason that we focus on the bad stuff every once in a while is because the bad stuff ruins things for us. Just like one wrong ingredient can ruin a well-cooked dish, even if 19 ingredients are perfectly prepared and, and put in in the exact right way, one wrong ingredient can spoil the entire dish, right? Well, that's me too. I'm admitting that's me too. And I have way more than one wrong ingredient in my life. I way too often think about myself first rather than others. I hurt people that I love. I say things I regret. I give in to temptation. I'm a notorious idol worshiper. Just ask me about it. I often struggle to think well of other people. I think that's probably you too. A fellow struggler, the Apostle Paul, says it this way. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyways. My decisions, such as they are, they don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. Don't those words ring true for you? Let's be honest. I can't save myself, and neither can you. We need a Savior. That's not merely my message, but I think it's the message of Christmas altogether. We need a Savior or else all of this is for naught. Last week, I walked into the house after work, and Katie said, quick, pull out your phone. I need you to record something. And I saw my daughter sitting on the floor with the nativity set that she had set up, one of her kids' little nativity sets. And Katie said, Lydia, can you tell me that wonderful story again that you just told me? The one that you just told me, could you tell me it again? And I, I want to show you what I, what I captured on video. Mary and Joseph went traveling to Bethlehem. And then Mary soon was going to have her baby. And then when Mary got her baby, she named her baby, Baby Jesus. And then, and then, and then Mary walked to go back home. And then when they looked, and then Jesus was gone. And then finally, Joseph and Mary found Jesus. Jesus was talking to men. They were talking about when will Jesus die on the cross. And then he told, and what did he And then he had dinner, and then, and then he, and then he told the disciples that he's gonna die on the cross, and then he's gonna go in the tomb, and then when he is in the tomb, he's gonna have a sacrifice that he's not gonna beat up, and then soldiers um, hammered Jesus on the cross, and then he. And then he prayed to his father. And then he went in the tomb. And then soldiers guard the tomb so no one will steal Jesus' body. And then when Mary and her friend 
judge came and then the angel was sitting on the big boulder and then the angel said, Jesus is not here. Jesus had a sacrifice and he is alive. And then Mary found Jesus and then Mary told, then Jesus told Mary, go tell the others that I am alive. And then Mary did what she what Jesus said, and then he told, and then they were so excited, and then they met Jesus. The end. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> now, I recognize that she bypassed some parts of Jesus' ministry in that story. But I show this to you uh, in part because it's ridiculously cute, and I'm, I'm a little biased on that, obviously. But more so, do you see what my five-year-old daughter did better than any of us? Cradle and cross. It's one story. If the Savior does not die for us, then that story is short and it's flat. For her, there was nothing more obvious in the midst of that nativity scene than to go straight to the bitterness of the cross. She didn't bury the lead, which is so much of what we are tempted to do in this season. The lead is this. You need a savior. Because life is bitter, and it's full of suffering, and we can't save ourselves. So what do we do? How do we recognize Jesus as savior? How do we live with Jesus as our savior? The answer is in scripture, as it usually is. Just like Esther, we must bathe in the uncomfortably bitter myrrh treatment until it sinks in. We so often think that perfumes and cosmetics are going to make us presentable before our king, that our goodness is going to cover up the wrinkles and the bruises, the cracks and the burns and the mortification. No, only myrrh can make us ready before the king. We must embrace bitterness and loss and sin. We must be willing to say, as the apostle Paul did, I want to do good, but I just, I can't. I need a savior. I can't save myself. We have to be honest enough to say that all the gold and the frankincense, they're only part of the story. It's the hopelessness of sin and death that necessitates a savior like Jesus, one who began and ended his earthly life with myrrh, with bitterness, who embraced bitterness so that we might receive the joyful and abundant life, that we might know salvation. Christmas is a recognition of the full picture of this salvation, that Christ is our king and our priest, but that that king and that priest must die because he is our savior. In the book of Revelation, John gives us a vision of the crucified Christ, the savior, standing at the door and knocking, waiting for us to repent our own blemishness, blemishes and our own bitterness, to open the door and to invite him in. Which brings me to one more instance of myrrh in scripture. And this one's kind of crazy. I think this one's pretty exciting to come across this. 
in the mysteriously beautiful book, Song of Solomon, John, this is the text where John gets this image of Jesus, the Messiah, knocking at the door. This image of the Messiah occurs for the first time. Here's what it says. In chapter 5, it says, My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open the door for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers were liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. Do you see what's going on here? You can't open the door of your heart for the Savior Jesus with gold and sweet-smelling incense. No, your hands must be covered in myrrh. So it was with Jesus, so it must be for us. If Jesus bears the, the marks of suffering and glory, myrrh and perfume, pain and pleasure, so must we. If Jesus came into the world and left this world with an anointing of bitterness, then who am I to turn away and to run from that reality? How can I afford to do that? Instead, I must say, Lord, bathe me in myrrh. Cleanse me and heal me and create a foundation in which I might meet you every single day as Lord and Savior. So I own the bitterness and the hardship just as Jesus did, so that I might know his life just as he did for me. In the season, Lord, would you let me be honest about my darkness? Would you let us be honest about our inability to expel it on our own so that we might gaze on Jesus Christ and exclaim, the people who have dwelled in darkness have seen a great light.